The headline in the September 2nd, 1887 edition of the Prescott Journal Miner was loud and splashy and just the kind of sensational news that everyone expected. Sheriff Mulvenin and all his posse have been killed in Tonto Basin, it screamed at its readers, before saying that Globe and Holbrook had been wired, but no new information had so far come in from either. And this news lit up across the territory, and was soon running in papers as far away as San Francisco. But the Phoenix Herald took it a step further, proclaiming, Sheriff W.J. Mulvenin murdered, 11 men killed and 7 wounded, posse gone to the relief of remaining deputies. Here's the thing, though. None of that had actually happened. It was all a hoax perpetrated against the original paper. Mulvenin and his men were very much alive and well, and even at that moment on their way back to Prescott. But it was the type of news that everyone was expecting, so everyone was willing to believe this false report of the death of the sheriff and his men among the lawless rabble in Arizona's high country. For some time, the newspapers had been filled with reports of violence and all manners of atrocities from this place with the ironic name of Pleasant Valley, where two families were locked in a mortal death struggle. And hadn't a shootout between these two sides just occur, claiming the lives of two men? Yes, the sheriff was still alive, but the war that he went to investigate was not only as alive as himself, but was even now reaching its fever pitch. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Episode 124, The Pleasant Valley War, Part 5, A Little War of Our Own. Welcome back, everyone. Last week, we saw tension in Pleasant Valley rise over the introduction of sheep to the area via the Tewksbury's, which naturally wrinkled cattlemen such as the Grams. And that tension finally spilled over into the first overt acts of aggression against sheep herders, and then into full-blown violence as two shepherds hired by the Daggs brothers were killed, one of them in Pleasant Valley itself. The Tewksbury's naturally suspected the Grams of this heinous deed, possibly, maybe, if you believe it, because of the help of a neighbor who planted tracks heading toward the Graham Ranch. But it wasn't like the Tewksbury's needed all that big of a push to believe that the Grams would do something like this. After all, as we talked about at the end of our last episode, the hardened outlaw Andy Cooper, a member of the Graham ally family, the Blevinses, had went around asking to be paid for any Tewksbury scalps he brought in. Also, the Grams and their allies had the habit of riding to Holbrook for some drinking, and the liquor loosened their tongues to the point where they made no secret that they wanted to hire a few men to exterminate their enemies. One of those who overheard this drunk talk was a woman named Maddie Ketchum, who was half Amerindian herself and so passed every word along to the similarly half Amerindian Tewksbury's. It's also said that the Grahams approached some White Mountain Apache bands in an attempt to have them join their conflict against the Tewksbury's, whom they had labeled as quote-unquote damn blacks. But funny enough, the Apache supposedly responded by saying that if they were to join the conflict, they would definitely be on the side of 
those damn blacks. So it wasn't totally out of the realm of possibility for the Tewksbury's to suspect the Grahams of killing a shepherd. But by the same token, it wasn't out of the realm of possibility for the Grahams to suspect that the Tewksbury's would retaliate for said death. And it's right at this point of mutual suspicion and recrimination that the worst possible thing happened. Old Man Blevins went looking for some horses. In late July 1887, the Blevins boys, namely Andy Cooper, Hamp, and Albert, who went by Charlie for some reason, rode out to Holbrook for a week on some business. Before they left, they had turned out a herd of horses to pasture. The day after they had done so and taken off for Holbrook, their father, Mart, known as Old Man Blevins, went out to round up the herd, but found all the horses had disappeared from their property. It's unknown if the animals had simply wandered off or were stolen, but both those scenarios are equally likely. As I mentioned a few times now, it wasn't like Pleasant Valley was the safest place to keep livestock these days. Mart and a neighbor saddled up and rode out to find where the animals had gone and or any culprits that might have taken them. Four days later, the neighbor returned to say that they still hadn't located the horses, but Mart refused to give up and he was still out there looking. Two days after that, the Blevins boys returned home from Holbrook to discover that, yeah, their father still had not returned. They next tried looking for him for a few days, but came up empty. Seriously alarmed now, the Blevins boys went out again, each in different directions. And it's here that things went from bad to worse. Author Eduardo Obregón Pagán writes that the disappearance of Mart Blevins was a seismic shift in the social conditions in Pleasant Valley, which mirrored the actual seismic shift that was the 7.2 magnitude earthquake felt across Arizona in May 1887. And note to self, I need to find some way to talk about that earthquake just a little bit more. Look for it in the coming episode. Anyway, the disappearance was when the fissures between the two sides truly opened and the damage became irreparable. As mentioned previously, it was not a ridiculous notion for the Grahams to suspect the Tewksbury's of having something to do with the disappearance of their father, perhaps in retaliation for the killing of the sheep herder. And Hamp Blevins probably had those kind of thoughts in mind as he rode into a hash knife camp at Big Dry Lake above the Mogollon Rim on August 3, 1887, looking for help. Hamp had ridden toward the Mormon settlement of Pinedale, but along the way he had met with some other hashknife cowboys and enforcers, and together they had then rode into this camp to gin up more support. The cowboys who enlisted in the search for Old Man Blevins were at something of a crossroads. Immediately prior to Hamp showing up, maybe like a matter of days, hashknife management had handed down an ultimatum. From here on out, their employees had to stop all the rustling that was causing so much grief for the outfit's neighbors. And the cowboys also had to stop the occasional gleaning of hashknife cows for their own benefit as well. That was the new mandate, and anyone who couldn't get along with that program was welcome to quit. 
it's kind of telling that at least three members of the posse that Hamp put together were those cowboys who couldn't abide by this stop stealing directive. A man named Will Barnes, who was at the Hashknife camp when Hamp and the others rode in, listened to the pitch to ride south to find old man Blevins. In another one of those seminal moments in any recounting of the Pleasant Valley War, Barnes remarked that the area was a tinderbox, or, by some accountings, that there was a war going on down there. John Payne, who was riding with Hamp and was a fearsome and feared former hashknife enforcer who had quit over the rustling ultimatum, is supposed to have shot back instantly, quote, maybe we'll start a little war of our own, end quote. The next morning, Hamp and the four men with him set out from the camp, with Barnes recalling that they had borrowed all the surplus ammunition in the camp and left, quote, without a pack horse or any supplies of any kind, except those of war, end quote. Now, it's possible that this group was already thinking about confronting the Tewksbury's and that the men with Hamp were of the opinion that it was time to drive this sheep out of the area permanently. That's the consensus, at least, of amateur historian Jinx Pyle, who concluded that this whole ride is in retaliation for the perceived killing of Mark Blemons. Personally, I'm unwilling to go that far and think that this group still had the original goal of finding what had become of the missing man, but that they were prepared for any eventuality, including if they found out old man Blevins had been killed by certain enemies. But what is certain is that this will end with Payne getting his wish of starting a little war, though it won't go so well for him. Between August 4th and August 9th, this search party apparently zigzagged around Canyon Creek and picked up a few reinforcements at the Graham Ranch. By the afternoon of August 9th, this group was about eight men strong, though I can't seem to find a definitive list of everyone who is now part of the posse. It's possible that the Grahams themselves joined in, but if they did, they stayed towards the back of the group and didn't immediately participate in what's about to go down. Anyway, these eight men rode up to what had been the Middleton Ranch, the place we talked about back in episode 120 that had been abandoned by the Middleton family after suffering repeated Apache attacks in the early 1880s. In the intervening years, the ranch had been sold to a man named George Newton, who just so happened to employ Ed Tewksbury as his foreman. The ranch was overseen by Newton's brother-in-law, who just happened to be there that fateful day. Who else was there? Well, if the composition of Ham's posse is a little fuzzy, the roster of those at the Middleton Ranch is downright unknowable. Accounts like Piles say that the Tewksbury's had learned about the group heading their way and had actually set an ambush at the cabin, complete with at least two, maybe three Tewksbury brothers and possibly up to seven of their allies. Another has anywhere between two Tewksbury's and two allies to three Tewksbury's and five or six more allies. Obregón Pagán contends that Newton's brother-in-law states that only he and Jim Tewksbury were present when everything happened. But then again, John Tewksbury's wife also said in her statement that she was at the cabin too, and that there were several friends there with them. Also, accounts differ as to what exactly they were doing there. Like I said, Pyle's version is that the Tewksbury's purposefully set an ambush, 
while others say they were barbecuing or otherwise just enjoying an easy afternoon together, and another account says that they were curing beef. And one other version is that they were doing just standard ranch work, but had congregated for safety, seeing that they had been hearing rumors about the Grahams looking to gather men to exterminate them. This is all just a long way of saying some Tewksbury allies were at the Middleton Ranch when some Graham allies arrived in the afternoon of August 9, 1887. And according to most versions, they were met by Jim Tewksbury at the door to the cabin, where they asked for some supper to help them along with their search. Jim, however, only sneered at their request and said something along the lines of, quote, No, sir, we do not keep a hotel here. End quote. This rejection of basic frontier hospitality was tantamount to a declaration of hostility, something that was not lost on Hamp Blevins and his posse. In one telling, when Jim Tewksbury refused their call for hospitality, John Payne, the former hash knife enforcer, yelled out, quote, You black son of an expletive deleted, end quote. And according to other versions, the posse asked to know whether a certain individual, a known Tewksbury partisan, was present, perhaps as a way to gauge what kind of forces could be inside that cabin. Now, the sequence of events for what happens next is very unclear, as both sides would later try to claim the moral high ground, though, fair warning, all the different variations end with men dead. The Graham narrative is that, after being so unceremoniously rejected, the posse wheeled their horses around and began to ride off when the Tewksbury's in the cabin suddenly opened fire on the retreating group. The Tewksbury version, predictably, is that Hamp Blevins and his men pulled guns first, so they, of course, retaliated. And we should remember that this is about more than assigning blame for an incident or painting your enemy as the one who wished to kill you first. This was about what the courts could and could not do. According to territorial law at the time, the person who fired first was the guilty party. Anything the other side did was in self-defense, up to and including killing the other guy. So, of course, both sides are going to jockey to gain the legal high ground of self-defense. But when the bullets started flying, it soon mattered very little who had gotten the first shot off. Almost immediately, Hamp Blevins was shot in the head, right between the eyes, according to author Daniel Justin Herman, and died immediately. John Payne, the former hashknife enforcer and all-around not-nice guy, is said to have tried to get a shot off at Jim Tewksbury, but his target wisely ducked back inside the cabin. Payne then had his horse shot out from under him. After the animal fell, he tried to work free a leg that was pinned under it, and a Tewksbury bullet took off part of his ear. He managed to get free, and with blood now streaming down his face, he stood just in time for another bullet to find him and make sure that he never got back up again. The man that had boasted about starting a little war of his own just became the second victim of that war. The other men in the posse all took off at speed, but one man was wounded through his lungs and another had a chunk of his upper leg blown off. Both of these would eventually lose their horses, meaning that they were left stumbling off in different directions through the wilderness on their own, heavily wounded. 
Miraculously, each would survive, with one reaching the ranch of a Graham ally and another a hashknife camp, but only after a few days of struggle. One of these even had to deal with a monsoon thunderstorm and an angry mother bear with her cubs before he got to safety. As for the men in the cabin, they feared immediate reprisal so they didn't go out to finish off the wounded men. Not knowing how many of their enemies were out there or whether there would be an immediate counterattack, they all stayed hunkered down in the cabin for hours. According to some versions, a couple of men slipped out toward evening to get the lay of the land, but quickly returned saying that a few dozen more men were riding toward the cabin even then. This turned out to not be a Graham counterattack, but rather a group of Apache, who paused when they came upon this scene of absolute carnage and death, and then noticed the rifle barrel sticking out of the cabin. The Apache, who had some pretty strong cultural taboos about death and dead bodies, turned around and fled. As fun as that little coda is, I'm not sure I quite believe it, mainly because this was 1887 and the vast majority of Apache had been forced onto the reservation at this point, so they probably weren't just wandering around. You know, I could be wrong though, so I pass it along. It wouldn't be too long before the other side got some modicum of revenge. The Tewksbury faction had left the cabin after the Apache, if they had ever been there, retreated. But by the evening of the next day, that cabin had been burned right to the ground. This act has been widely attributed to the Grams and their allies who had come back to the scene in order to bury their dead. After taking care of that somber task, they decided to take out their frustrations on the now vacant cabin. One man would actually later testify that he had been there and he had witnessed Al Rose, a Graham partisan, packing wood and kindling next to the cabin's corrals. By the time the owner or a Tewksbury returned to the area, it was nothing more than a pile of ash. Some sources say that in the immediate aftermath of the shootout, Lewis Parker, a nephew of the Grahams, led a group to track down where the Tewksburys had gone, eventually finding them holed up in a rocky spot in the Sierra Ancha Mountains on the southern end of the valley. Parker and the rest of the Graham faction, finding that their enemies were in a nigh-impregnable situation, decided instead to cut them off from a nearby spring, which was the only source of fresh water. A guard was posted at the spring to stop any and all of the Tewksbury faction from trying to sneak down and fill their canteens. That night, the sound of gunshots were heard, and when the Grahams made it to the spring, they found their guard dead and that someone on the Tewksbury side had managed to get water. The other version of this is preserved by author Don Dedera, who identifies Jim Tewksbury in particular as the one who snuck off to the spring that night. He filled the canteens and was starting to head back when the guard saw him. Jim's brother, Ed, was nearby, and he called out a warning about the Graham guard, so in response, Jim managed to get off a shot over his shoulder, which hit the guard in the thigh, but it still turned out to be a fatal wound. If this story is true, then the Grahams have now lost three allies in just a matter of days. There is no way that this is going to end well. But before we get into the rest of the bloodshed next week, I want to dwell on a question that you might have forgotten about in all the excitement of the shootout at the Middleton Ranch. And that question is, what really happened to Old Man Blevins? Because 
he's never going to be found, and what became of him is still a source of conjecture to this very day. So I want to run through the various theories real quick, ranging from the mundane to the predictable, but hard to prove, the Tewksbury's killed him. Obregón Pagán posits that Mart actually took a dangerous trail trying to find his lost horses, as he followed stream beds that cut across the San Carlos Reservation. Remember, Mart's sons had not really been shy about stealing from, or even killing the Navajo, and even the Apache. Obregón Pagán says that the Amerindians all knew the Blevinses by sight and by name, and it was a bad time for him to go riding through their turf. He also cites a report from an interpreter on the reservation who said that around this same time, word reached San Carlos of a white man who had found an Apache encampment along the San Carlos River and, after a night of getting drunk with them, had been unceremoniously killed by the Apache. Those sent to investigate found a body burned beyond recognition and no clues to his identity. This specific body may have not been marked, but it's entirely possible that he met a similar fate. Herman says that a newspaper in September 1887, a bit more than a month after the disappearance, reported that someone came across his body near Pleasant Valley, but it had been stripped of all flesh. I'm not sure how they identified the man as Mart if all his flesh was missing, but that's what they say. Another person claimed in 1894 that he found Mart's skull next to a rusty rifle. Herman then runs through a list of dangers on the frontier at the time, including grizzly bears, coyotes, Apache, snake bites, a bad fall, or even being struck by lightning during a summer monsoon storm. That last one being plausible, if not exactly probable. The author also posits that if his death had been from natural causes, then it's more than likely that coyotes or feral hogs then gnawed on his corpse, thus the possibility of his flesh being stripped off. Herman also adds that it is possible that the Graham faction had been right, that the Tewksbury's had found Mart, taken him, and killed him in retaliation for the death of the Dag's brother Shepard, which leads us down the conspiracy rabbit hole. Because this is the theory that Pyle goes with, seeing as he always seems to have handy some secret account that some old-timer had kept hidden for decades when he needs to make his point. In this case, he heard from someone who was the nephew of someone who had worked for someone who told him that old man Blevins traced his stolen horses straight to the Tewksbury's ranch. The Tewksbury's then overpowered Mart, took him to a certain ridge, shot him, and buried him in a shallow grave. Supposedly, bones were found up on that ridge years later. Pyle also says that another source gives a similar story except that old man Blevins was killed at the northwest corner of a certain horse pasture, and the wild hogs in the area ate up his corpse. Which one of these theories is true, you ask? Well, we don't know. Any of these theories is at the very least plausible, but Mart's ultimate fate will probably never be known. What's truly important, though, is that his disappearance was the direct cause of the outbreak of a wave of serious violence in the Pleasant Valley War. Another thing you might be wondering right about now is, where is the law in all of this? You can't just have people shooting at each other without some sort of official response, right? And you would be correct, up to a point. In the age before 911 or heck, telephones and electricity, Law enforcement was only so effective, 
especially in a little out-of-the-way spot like Pleasant Valley. But that doesn't mean it didn't exist. Over in Prescott, Yavapai County Sheriff Bill Mulvenon heard about the Middleton Ranch Cabin shooting on August 16th, so roughly a week after it happened. According to one source, it was Lewis Parker, the nephew of the Grams, who had tracked the Tewksbury's, who then made the three-day ride to Prescott to swear out complaints against them. The death of two men, and a possible third if you count old man Blevins, definitely warranted a response from the long arm of the law. And three days later on August 19th, after getting a warrant, Mulvenon rode off for Pleasant Valley. If you believe Jinx Pyle, this was actually Mulvenon's second visit to the area that year. The author relays an incident from right after the death of the Nameless Shepherd in February, where the sheriff went riding toward Pleasant Valley to investigate. Mulvenon and the small posse with him camped with some cowboys in a tiny draw on top of the rim when a group of men rode up to the edge of the camp's firelight. This group asked for Mulvenon by name, and when he identified himself, a rider walked into the firelight and told the sheriff straight up that this was their fight, and that for his own good, the sheriff should just turn around and go. Once they had settled things their way, maybe they would send for him. The sheriff was not happy with this warning, and told the men that if he and his posse couldn't come in and do their jobs, then he would send for the militia. At this, the spokesman whom Pyle identifies as Jim Tewksbury, laughed and says the militia wouldn't be able to find them if they tried. In fact, there was a whole host of men in the wilderness all around them right now whom they haven't noticed. This warning committee then turned and melted away into the night. But Sheriff Mulvenon was not the sort of man to be intimidated, so the next day he proceeded on toward Pleasant Valley. However, he was soon met by an armed group of riders who represented the other faction of the conflict, who also told him that he needed to go and that he would be called for once the matter had been settled. At this point, the sheriff decided that discretion was the better part of valor, and he returned to Prescott. As I said, Pyle is the only person to record this incident, and I'm a little dubious of its veracity, but I wanted to pass it along anyway. No matter if he had tried to go there in February, Mulvenon definitely rode out for Pleasant Valley in August. Taking two trusted deputies with him, he also called for reinforcements from Flagstaff and met up with the local Justice of the Peace in Payson. Then, ready for action, the sheriff descended into Pleasant Valley. At a store in the heart of Pleasant Valley owned by Charles Perkins, and creatively known as the Perkins Store, Mulvenon was met by a contingent of Graham partisans. Andy Cooper, who had just lost a father and a brother, was part of this group and the loudest. However, it was an actual Graham, I have no record of which, that made the most provocative statement when he told the sheriff to arrest their enemies, otherwise they would take matters into their own hands and exterminate the Tewksbury's themselves. Dedera also adds the flourish that after this powwow, the sheriff and his posse found that their horses had all been stolen in the meantime. It was only after Mulvenon read the riot act to every man in earshot that their steeds were swiftly returned. This detail sounds a little fanciful to me, but I kind of like the idea that a bunch of rustlers who were yelling at a sheriff to enforce the law couldn't keep their own kleptomania in check. Having no warrants for the rest of any of the men who had just met him, though doubtless they were all guilty of something, Mulvenon rode off to find the Tewksbury's. However, he couldn't. 
Only James Dunning Tewksbury, the father of the clan, and John Tewksbury's wife were present at their homestead, and neither seemed that inclined to talking. The posse then proceeded to the Middleton Ranch to see the scene for themselves, but couldn't find any evidence that would actually be useful in a court case. What Mulvenon did get was a secret meeting with George Newton, the owner of the Milton Ranch and a staunch Tewksbury ally. The sheriff never revealed what was said during this meeting, but the prevailing thought was that Newton promised Mulvenon that if he were to obtain warrants against the Grams, who really started this whole nasty business, don't you know, then the Tewksburys would turn themselves in at Prescott. Whether this is true or not, Mulvenon decided to head back to Prescott without any arrests or any sort of real end to the volatile situation in the valley. His reappearance in quote-unquote civilization also reassured people that reports of his death had been greatly exaggerated. We are going to leave things here for this week, in the wake of this shootout that marks the start of the bloodiest period in the entire Pleasant Valley War. And I do mean start of the bloodiest period. Because as Mulvenon and his men rode off, they learned about one more atrocity that had actually been committed before they even arrived, and helped explain why the Graham faction was so set on him arresting the Tewksburys, or them exterminating them. Join me next week as we look at the shooting of teenager William Billy Graham, whose death would set off another awful round of retaliation that would lead only to more death and more carnage. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ, The History of Arizona. Goodbye.